Chapter 14 of Religion and Health. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Religion and Health by James Joseph Walsh. Chapter 14 Suffering. The problem of the meaning of suffering and evil in the world is the greatest natural mystery that man has to face. It has raised the question as to whether life is worth living or not in some minds. It causes a great many people to be disturbed about the meaning of life, and has led some sensitive people to conclude that there cannot be an overseeing, all-wise providence, since otherwise he would surely prevent all the needless suffering there is in the world. Biologists, owing to their occupation with the thought of the struggle for existence, in current theories of evolution, have been particularly inclined to say that they could not think that there was a providence, because there was so much of carnage in nature, so much ruthless destruction of life amid suffering, for which it would be hard to find any satisfactory reason. There has been no little exaggeration in this view, for a calm review of conditions as they obtain in nature shows not so much of active contest as a healthy competition for the means of existence, in the midst of which death comes to the weaken, weakling without anything like the suffering so much emphasized. It must not be forgotten that the supersensitiveness of the sedentary student must be taken into account in the appreciation of the significance of such a declaration. For the recluse scientist often shrinks from trials that the active outdoors man finds only a stimulus to action, which serve to develop powers and give satisfaction rather than any real suffering. The incentive to have life, and to have it more abundantly, which this affords to the hardier natures, makes the poet's expression, for san at haec olam, memenisi huvabit. Perhaps we shall be glad to recall these hardships in the time to come easy to appreciate. Life without suffering would lack the contrast which saves it from the dull monotony that might tempt a waste of energy in dissipation. Perhaps the most and best illustration of the actual benefit to man which accrues from suffering is to be found in the fact that one of the surprising results of the presence of the mystery of suffering in the world is that meditation over it has given rise to the five greatest dramatic poems that were ever written. Men contemplating it have been led to the expression of the deepest thoughts that have ever stirred minds. These great poems have come at longer and shorter intervals during 4,000 years. From Job, the essential ideas for which probably date from around 1800 BC, through its literary form is much later, through Achilles' Prometheus, Shakespeare's Hamlet, Calderon's The Wonder-Working Magician, down to Goethe's Foss. Of these five dramatizations of the mystery of human suffering, recurring poetic impersonation of Hamlet's, the time is out of joint, O cursed spite, the ever I was born to set it right. The greatest, as conceded by all the critics, is not as might be expected from the very prevalent impression that man makes wonderful pro progress down the ages, 
the last one, goes fast. But is the first one, Job. No one has ever expressed so well the only reasonable attitude of mind that man must take in the presence of evil and suffering as this man of the land of Hus, whose name was Job, and who was simple and upright and fearing God and avoiding evil, yet who had to bear some of the severest trials that man has ever been called upon to undergo. Mr. H. G. Wells has recently, in one of his thought-stimulating novels, shown us that verisimilitude of the most modern type could be woven into a story which followed the outlines of the book of Job very closely, so that far from being dead, even the novelty-seeking fiction readers of our generation have brought home to them the fact that Job is still a very living piece of literature. Job's answer to the mystery of evil is that man must confess his inability to understand it, but he can trust the God who thunders wonderfully with his voice, and doth great and unsearchable things, who commandeth the snow to go down on the earth and the winter rain, who knoweth what ways the light spreads and heat divideth on the earth, who joins together the shining stars, the Pleiades, and can stop the turning about of Arcturus, and who created Behemoth and Levithian, and can bind the rhinoceros, and has fashioned the ostrich. All that Job can say is, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Therefore, for any impatience that he may have displayed over his suffering, he reprehends himself, and promises to do penance in dust and ashes. And after this Job lived one hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. In any consideration of suffering, above all in connection with the related subjects of health and religion, we must not forget that suffering has always been a badge of the race, the common lot of men, so that this very community of it greatly reduces human reaction towards it, since the sufferer cannot help but note that everyone else must submit to it as well as himself. At times among those who fail to think deeply, enough this may be doubted. The poor may even envy the rich, because they suppose that they must, by their riches, escape suffering. But most physicians soon learn to appreciate very well that the mental discomforts of the wealthy, their disappointed social ambitions, their thwarted aspirations after greater wealth, their envy of their more successful neighbors, but above all, their frequent disappointment in their children, though it is almost invariable, their very wealthy has spoiled the children and brought their greatest griefs on them, are really the source of much more genuine suffering than the poor have to bear. The worries of life increase with possessions, not decrease, as is fondly hoped. And as the author of the Romance of the Rose said some seven centuries ago, And he who what he holds esteems, enough is rich beyond the dreams, of many a dreary usurer, and lives his life days happier far. For not it signifies what gains the wretched usurer makes the pains of poverty afflict him yet, who having a sluggish still to get. Suffering must ever remain a mystery, especially when we take into account the fact that all of us are profoundly possessed 
supply the desire for happiness. We can never probe to the bottom of the mystery and know all its meaning, but at least we can readily understand that in the vast majority of cases, instead of being an evil, it is a good. Nothing so deepens and develops character as suffering. Take the case of our young men who went to war, so many of them scarcely more than boys, feeling but little of the responsibilities of life, and see how they come back to us matured by the hardships and suffering through which they had to go. Thucydides said nearly 2,500 years ago, there is very little difference among men. Only a few of them rise above the great mass because they have gone through hard things when they were young. It would seem as though we have changed all that, for we are deeply intent on making things just as easy as possible for the young. But a generation ago, Gladstone repeated Thucydides' expression with heartiest approval. And 20 years ago, John Morley, writing The Life of Gladstone, agreed with both of them. I wonder if there are two men in our time who have known better than Gladstone and Morley. In that sense, suffering is no mystery. And it is ease to see how it is quite literally true that whom the Lord loves, he chastises. It is the chastisement of suffering that brings out the powers of men. Anyone who has not had to suffer in life is nearly always a self-centered egoist without sympathy, but above all, without that fellow feeling that comes only from having gone through similar experience. He who has not suffered has really lived below the surface of his being at all, and he does not know himself. To know thyself is the most important thing in the world and the only way to know others. The men who have done great thinking for us have nearly always been men who have had to suffer much. It was a blind Milton who wrote Paradise Lost. When Camillons wrote the German and French critics think, and when Germans and French agree about anything, there is probably a deep underlying truth in it, the greatest epic in modern times. He was a starving in a garret, and his old Indian servant was begging him on the streets to secure enough to keep body and soul together until the great work was finished. Cervantes wrote what Lord Macaulay called incomparably the greatest novel ever written, in a debtor's prison, out of which it seemed he might never be able to secure his release. Dante wrote what many think the greatest poem ever written during a long exile in which he learned how bitter it is to eat the bread of others' tables. Poeta laudator alecet, the poet is praised and starves. It is true in our time, as when Horace said it 3,000 years ago. Goldwin Smith has brought out very clearly the fact that suffering and evil are really a necessity in a world, if this is the place of trial, as everyone believes. For, of course, such a belief represents the only satisfactory explanation of life as we have it. Man must have something to strive for and against if there are to be stepping stones of our dead selves to higher things. And so it is not surprising that Dr. Goldwin Smith should have said. At the same time, so far as we can discern, character can be formed only by an effort which implies something against which to strive, so that without evil, or what appears to us evil, character could not be formed. The existence of evil, in fact, so far as we can see, 
is the necessary condition of active life. Suffering has been with us from the beginning, and it will always be with us. Instead of an evil, it is one of God's great gifts to man. And yet it sometimes makes little souls bitter and swamps the efforts of those who cannot rise above its trials. Religion is the one element that is supremely helpful in this. Above all, in the terminal sufferings of mankind, when there is no longer any question of pain that has to be born in developing character for this life, the only consolation is that to be derived from religion and a firm belief in hereafter and an acknowledgement of the fact that somehow God knows best and all is for the best. Without this, the awful suffering from cancer, which is increasing rather than diminishing, and which to be seems so rooted in human nature that we shall probably never solve its mystery, or at least be able to secure human nature against it, as well as ever so many other chronic sources of pain that will never cease entirely until the end of life comes, becomes hideous specters for humanity, and suffering has very little meaning. No matter what our attitude of mind may be with regard to suffering, there is no question that we have to stand it under present conditions in this little world of ours. During the next 12 months, scarcely less than 100,000 people will die of cancer in the country, and a million and a half victims of the disease will breathe their last throughout the world. When we add up all the accidents in industry and transportation, all the wounds in war and civil life, and add the affections which in one way or another cause mechanical stoppages of processes in the body, for these are the exquisitely painful conditions, it is easy to understand that we need consolation for suffering. An old medical axiom is that the doctor can seldom cure, but he can often relieve, and he can always console. There are many good physicians, however, who feel their ability to console, sadly hampered by the fact that so many men and women in our time do not believe in a hereafter, for which their sufferings in this world can be a preparation, and that therefore the terminal suffering of existence, of which it, there is, and manifestly always will be such an amount, can mean nothing for them except just so much pain that has to be borne without any good reason that they can see, except that somehow or other things were so arranged in this world that there is ever so much more of pain and suffering than of joy in it. 2,000 years ago, Cicero said in his own oratorical way that it was better for all of us to believe in immortality. For if there was no immortality, we should never live after death to know it, which comes very near being an Irish pool by anticipation. While if there was, and we had not believed in it, there would come a very rude awakening to the truth of things. Something of the same problem has been put in much more flippant and yet very expressive way in modern slang. If there is no other world than this, then someone handed us an awful lemon where we were sent into existence. That is, I suppose, one answer to the mystery of suffering, so sure to come to all men in some way or another, and it is one that counsels us to seek the only real consolation for suffering, that which is to be found in religious feeling, that somehow or another, somewhere, there is someone who knows and understands, and suffering has its meaning. God in his heaven, and all's well with the world, 
in spite of the fact that nature red in tooth and claw works such sad havoc with her creatures what the belief in immortality and the feeling that this life is merely in portico has accomplished in giving a man equanimity in the face of disappointments and patient fortitude under even atrocious pain is very well illustrated by what professor william james had to say of thomas davidson in his essay on him davidson died of cancer at a comparatively early age considering the length of time that many scholars enjoy and for many years he had prepared a large amount of material for that history of the interaction of the greek christian hebrew and arabic throughout one on one another before the arrival of learning which was to be his magnum opus davidson was destined never to finish his work professor james who had been an intimate friend and who was so close to him in the organization of the glenmore school of culture sciences on hurricane mountain at the head of keene valley and the adirondacks had felt the possibility of this accident of destiny and had inquired of davidson with regard to his great prospective work knowing how short his life may be i once asked him whether he felt no concern lest the work already done by him should be frustrated from the lack of necessary compliment in case he were suddenly cut off his answer surprised me by its indifference he would work as long as he lived he said but not allow himself to worry and would look serenely at whatever might be the outcome this seemed to me uncommonly high-minded i think that davidson's conviction of immortality had much to do with such a superiority to the accidents on the surface and toward small things he was irritable enough but the undertone of his character was remarkable for equanimity he showed in in it his final illness of which his misery was really atrocious there were no general complaints of lamentations about the personal situation or the arrest to his career it was the human lot and he must even bear it so he kept his mind upon objective matter only a profound conviction of personal immortality will enable a man who feels that he is cut off in the midst of his work to bear with patience the final ailment which by its very progress is precluding the possibility of accomplishing the task he had set to himself yet this interruption of their chosen labor inevitably comes to a great many men for death no matter how late it might seem to onlookers to occur happens untimely to most of humanity even though they may count up years far beyond the threescore and ten of the psalmist the great resource in the midst of the suffering caused by the war for soldiers and civilians has been religion it was sadly needed but it was magnificently employed anyone who saw how much their religion meant to the soldiers who really had faith will appreciate very well how valuable it was for them many a man who had given up his faith and this was particularly true of the french found a new power to dare and to do and also to bear and to carry on in the religion that it had seemed they could so readily dispense with before colton writing a series of aphorisms in lacan a century ago declared that there are three arguments for atheism more effective than any other health and wealth and friends when we have our health and an abundance of money at our command besides many and powerful friends 
who seem willing to do everything that they can for us. We feel but little need of God, and then many men refuse to believe in him. Necessity is a very precious thing, the mother not only of invention, but of reverence and many other good qualities. But when suffering comes, especially if wealth, and in that case, of course, friends, have disappeared, God is very firm support to lean on. Many a man has found his faith again under such circumstances, and has realized how flimsy were the veils which he had allowed to come between him and his recognition of his obligations to his Creator. The presence of suffering and evil in the world has provided us one of, one of the most striking arguments for the existence of God, and of the hereafter that we have. As Goldwyn Smith said, This is all events is certain. If death is to end all alike for the righteous and for the unrighteous, for those who have been blessings and for those who have been curses to their kind, the power which rules the universe cannot be just in any sense of the word which we can understand. Dr. Carroll, in The Mastery of Nervousness, has summed up the value of suffering as a revealer of power and a bracer of strength in the words that are more worth remembering. None knows his real strength till he has faced failure and tasted the bitterness of defeat. Physical and mental suffering and soul pain come to all that endurance may be developed, with, and for without this strength which conquers can never be. The master's man laughs in the face of personal hurts. Offenses fail to offend, insults fail to embitter. He turns with shame from the so-called depths of suffering. For him, honor and majesty of the soul are found upon the heights of suffering. In a world, the really brave man does not let himself sink under the burden of suffering, but maintains his place and stands up firmly under it. Under these circumstances, suffering, instead of being an evil, is a good. After the showing of mercy, man is likest to God, when he stands suffering bravely and brings good out of evil, even as providence does. End of chapter 14